You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Critical race theory, CRT. You've probably heard these terms by now. But when I was posting about this just a few months ago, I would still have people ask, what's CRT? What are you talking about? Well, we are talking about it today. This is a special episode because one, it wasn't planned. Two, I recorded it today. And three, we're not actually talking about the story of my guest, Brad Mason, but we're talking about a topic. And that topic is something that he's very passionate about. Now, I came across Brad's work... I want to say a couple of years ago when I started my journey into learning what the heck critical race theory was. Because when you engage in anti-racism work and when you engage in conversations about dismantling systems of oppression, the average person will have somebody call them a Marxist, a communist, a CRT-loving, anti Christian, you know, any number of names. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to learn, well, what is critical race theory? What is this thing people are accusing me of? And I went on a journey and Brad's work under also a carpenter.com was really the only thing that I could find out there outside of books and academia that tried to address the question, what is critical race theory? And what are the implications for Christians? Now, you don't have to be a Christian to listen to this, because what we're really talking about is what is critical race theory? What are the implications of it in the nation? And why are so many people up in arms about it? When we finished recording today, I went to turn my phone on. And the first news story that popped up was that Florida schools have banned critical race theory. And I was like, oh, okay. So I don't think I'm going to wait six weeks to put this out. I'm going to listen to it, edit it, and send it out. It's long. It's an hour and 40 minutes. I don't typically do an episode of this length in one chunk, but I trust that people are interested enough. You can come back to the conversation if you don't have that amount of time. But it's an important conversation. Stick with it. Lots of gems. Um, We incorporated some questions from people from Twitter and Facebook. And I hope you find this helpful. So today on the show, I'm joined by Brad Mason. We met through Twitter. Actually, I think I came across your work specifically because I had to learn what critical race theory was. I'm the everyday person who's been engaging anti-racism work for close to 10 years. And about three years ago or so, I started getting called, you know, a Marxist and a communist and a CRT loving, you know, whatever. Right. right? And so that sent me on a journey into looking into like, what is CRT? Like, what is this even? Tell our guests a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how did you get involved in these discussions around critical race theory? Yeah, I actually am a cabinet maker. I own a cabinet company, so I do quite a bit of mostly drafting and the contract work on that end. But um, so that's why I'm also a carpenter is pretty, uh, pretty literal. (laughs) So 
that's what I do with a lot of my time in the day. I'm married with uh, four children, and one of them, as I told you, just graduated today from high school. So that's where what we were up to this morning. Um, and in terms of coming to study critical race theory and similar things, I think I, like you, had began reading and really researching race and racism and history of the United States and abroad, probably maybe years and now, six years ago, something like that. And I started writing on the subject then. And then, of course, pretty soon after, uh, you know, you started to hear, just as you said, this talk about, well, critical theory was, well, even before that, you were hearing cultural Marxism, right? That phrase started kind of buzzing around. And then oh, and after yeah. that, you heard, uh, but cultural Marxism, I just didn't buy. I at least knew where that came from and you totally. know, what the, totally. the concept was for that. Um, and then next, you heard just critical theory. And people were talking mainly about Frankfurt School. And then it's like the opposition was, you know, honing in their sights until they landed on critical race theory. And then that became an explanation for the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, any of the, the pushback that was coming in the country um, against uh, police shootings, racist policies, all of those things kind of then like, aha, critical race theory looked like the means to tie this movement related. I mean, obviously sparked probably, you know, by Ferguson and of course Trayvon and, and, and those uh, events. And so I think that critical race theory just became like an opportunity to sort of trace that movement back to Marxism or communism or whatever scary phrase could be used. So obviously when I started hearing that a lot, then I started to look into it. And, and I originally just thought it was like critical theory. Um, I was familiar with Marcusa and Habermas um, probably more than anyone else. I, I hadn't really read Horkheimer or anything at the time, but I started to. And then thought that, oh, it's just applying, you know, the old critical theory school to the issue of race. But then I began to learn even more that it wasn't even that, that, that actually critical race theory, in my opinion, holds up a lot better than does critical theory. And they're quite different. Um, and that critical race theory is really just the, you know, civil rights movement with a more radical, more critical approach to to sort of respond to the post-civil rights um, retrenchment movement that happened in America. So once once I understood critical race theory as distinct in many ways from critical theory, though sort of sharing aspects of the tradition, then um, I, I quite a bit began to enjoy reading it <laughs> and learning more and more. And, and then, of course, you're driven along by constantly hearing false presentations of it and, you know, right. kind of pushes pushes you to want to find even more accuracy on the subject. Well, and the thing that strikes yeah. me, I mean, it's it's challenging because this is an academic study, right? And for me to even mm -hmm. wade into these waters to read about critical race theory and the critiques on it, I mm -hmm. was out of my element. I'm not in academia. And so what I'm really intrigued by and what I'm hoping that we're able to do today is have this conversation in a way that makes sense to like the average person who's like, oh, critical sure. race theory, I heard about it, it's bad. 
Um, can you tell us, right. just give us a, a general idea, and I know even the question is a bit much, but can you give us a general idea on what critical theory is? So critical theory, I mean, if we're going all the way back to, say, Frankfurt School, would have been a group of people who were originally connected with Marxism um, in largely in opposition to fascism, right? So that was kind of like the, the two radical poles um, leading up to uh, World War II, where you had the fa fascist movement on the one hand, and then you sort of had the radical Marxist response on the other hand. So the Frankfurt School was kind of born from that Marxist side of things, but they were pretty disenchanted with Marx proper or communism or the totalitarianism that was being developed in the USSR and you know other places where it was taking hold. And um, so really what they sort of honed in on was more uh, Marx's uh, critical approach to understanding social problems. So the idea that rather than just looking at the surface level of you know, class warfare or things like that, what Marx did was kind of went below that to see how the very nature of the, uh, the means and modes of production created that class warfare and that animosity and, and a lot of things that led to social ills. So they didn't directly adopt that ideology, but they adopted sort of that critical approach of, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we can if we could peel back sort of the surface layer of all of these events and find things that are more fundamental that could be driving these social ills generally, um, then we could think about reformatting, you know, changing things to, to solve those problems. So that broadly, I would say that, that critical theory is just taking Marx's critical approach without his base superstructure system or or his class essentialism or his bourgeois versus the proletariat you know right. all of those things were kind of seen like eh, an application didn't really work they were you know comfortable walking away from that but the critical approach itself they sort of developed as very helpful in in understanding society understanding the problems of society as more than just individual actors making bad decisions or being mean, but rather maybe people are acting, you know, normally and in their best interest within a wider system that that um, leads to all of the problems that they experience. So yeah. obviously I, w I would say critical theory itself was is subject to a lot of good critique. Um, I think it was pretty overblown and totalizing and they wanted it to be much more. I, most of them learned by the end of their lives themselves that it wasn't really going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, people like Adorno and Habermas, some of the, the major proponents kind of quite a bit softened even themselves. That their their program was how are we gonna how are we gonna destroy fascism from the roots? Right. right? Was really the goal. They opposed totalitarianism. And they saw that the that the technique they were applying actually, you know, had was very good at um, deconstructing, but could never really get to a reconstructive program for most. Yeah. Um, Marcusa and Habermas struggled, uh, Marcusa in sort of a political realm, in the realm of activism, try to find a way kind of out of that morass of just incessant deconstruction, um, as did uh, Jorgen Habermas through philosophy of language and, you know, basically structuring communication in a way that could kind of like 
breach something back together after you've broken it to tiny little pieces. But not to go on too long. Sure. No. <laughs> I just feel like a critical theory itself yeah. was a, a very robust movement, quite a bit interesting, applying Marx's the, that fundamental uh, type of critique that Marx used, but not Marxism proper or traditional Marxism or political Marxism or any of those things they weren't as much interested right. in. But also quite a bit subject to critique in that um, their anti-accessionalism ran so deep that, you know, basically anything may be uh, subject to um, reconstruction, right. you know, right. society-wide, yeah. if that makes sense. So let's, let's go to critical race right. theory now. What is critical race theory? Right. So broadly, I would say that critical race theory is just the the more uh, substantive tradition and discourse from the uh, abolitionist civil rights movement that is critically transformed to address the, the retrenchment, right? The sort of uh, response to the civil rights movement. And so in essence, you're taking the, the, the traditional uh, civil rights discourse and through the means of things like critical tools and other things to to respond to the, the changed legal environment that followed the civil rights movement, right? Um, so if I were to sort of expand that out, within the civil rights movement itself, you sort of had a, a tension between the idea of creating formal equality, right? Just passing the laws necessary to say no one can discriminate or a Brown versus Board of Education decision where you know, now uh, create racial mixing would be the solution to end segregation. So require the schools to to bring in black children or, you know, racialized minorities in general. It depends on where you were in order to to uh, end segregation. And then that would be considered the solution of the problem so that now everybody's playing on an equal playing field. So there's kind of that ideology. But then there was also I would say probably more predominant was the idea that formal equality was just to be a means towards substantive equality, right? So if you go back to like the speech that Lyndon B. Johnson gave to, I believe it was Howard in the 60s, where he gives that example of runners being brought out to a race. And then if certain run runners had shackles on their legs their whole life, and then you just took the shackles off and you put them at the starting line and you said, okay, race. Right. Would that be considered a fair race? Right. Or should we be structuring society such that, you know, groups of people that have been literally hampered uh, economically, socially and legally in every way possible for so long then that we could say we've created a just and equal society if we just remove the formal barriers? And and of course, he said no. Throughout the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you have uh, Title seven and in there that Congress itself said that the goal was to to restore right the the African American from the situation that they'd been put in. So it was intended to be a remedy. So so that it was the idea was not just to say okay now you can have all the jobs, but to assure that that they were actually being included and actually uh, could begin to eliminate the disparities that had been created throughout you know history for the previous 350 years. So just pointing that out to show that 
I would add, even going all the way back to uh, the Reconstruction era following the Civil War, right, when they passed the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, at the time, uh, Congress and even the courts were, were very clear for a short period that the intention of that was to respond to the actual situation that was created, to actually lift a people up out of what they'd been put into, not just to create a formal uh, system of equality. So kind of that tension had always existed, that you could sort of opt for, a, well, the, the just you want formal equality, color blindness, something of that sort, or on the other hand, you know, no, we actually have to repair the damage that has been created. Um, and it, I'd say a perfect example that I like to uh, give is from um, the, the Supreme Court case shortly after the sort of civil rights era of Griggs versus Duke Power. And this was a, a company that legally segregated prior to 1964. So the, the, the makeup of the, the company and who had what jobs and everything was uh, obviously very discriminatory. The, the white people had all the best positions and, you know, and then of course uh, racialized minorities had all the poor positions, laboring positions. So they were legally discriminating and distributing jobs according to race prior to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But as soon as that was passed, of course, he could no longer do that. So the employer then created uh, a test, right, that that somehow had the exact same effect. So the jobs were racially distributed exactly the same way that they were when it was explicit, mm-hmm. right, explicit uh, discrimination just 10 years prior to this case happening. So whether you're on one end of the 1964 Civil Rights Act or the other, the makeup of his company looks exactly the same. The only difference is is now he says it's just merit, whereas before it was discrimination. So now, in essence, he can just say, I'm not discriminating anymore. Therefore, whatever the actual subordinated circumstances of my employees are, must be normal, must be natural, it must be just the way, you know, it, it yeah. kind of came out from how people work. Do they work hard enough? Maybe, you know, it has something to do with that. Some people are smarter than other people, right? So so you could look at it that in one way of now he's an equal opportunity employer, right? Because discrimination is against the law and the same distribution just happens to come about based upon the, the quality of the people working and the quality of the people uh, applying for jobs etc. Um, so that would be sort of like a formal approach. But what's interesting is that early on in this period, the courts didn't understand the civil rights laws to even mean that. So what they did is they actually required Griggs, the employer, to demonstrate that there was a compelling interest in using this test that directly related to the qualifications for employment. And he had to prove that or he was in violation of Title VII. Right. So what the courts early understood was the very intention of the civil rights law and even the reconstruction laws from from way before was to be remedial. Right. It was it was to change the actual circumstances that people had suffered under, not just create laws that that you could formally conform to and have it create no no societal change at all. Right. right? That wasn't the understanding. So if we're going back to the definition uh, and explanation of what critical race theory is, I would say that, that 
we had America or uh, in general, the civil rights movement had this understanding of civil rights law and what the goal was and that it was remedial and that it was intended to change the subordinated circumstances yeah. of actual people, right? But shortly after, even within 10 years, just going into the 1970s, we had uh, a full-on backlash and reinterpretation of what the intention of the civil rights laws were, such that now, because we're a society that doesn't discriminate, we've said that, we have formal equality and discriminations against the law and there's equal opportunity, then whatever disparities along the color line or, or according to race that exists in our country, we can argue came about legally and must be just representative of the quality of the people, that it's, it's natural, normal to be expected and correct. So in a sense, through that backlash, the civil rights legislation itself becomes a means became a means to legitimize and legitimate the status quo, which was unequal, right? So now we could all tell ourselves that the circumstances we're in is not due to racism or anything of the sort. It's it's because we don't do that according to law. So whatever circumstances they are, it must be just the meritocracy at work, right? And so what? People like uh, Alan Freeman and Dr. Bell in the 70s who began to, uh, both legal theorists, you know, law professors, er Derek Bell was working for the Legal Defense Fund for many years, litigating Brown versus Board of Education type cases all across the, the country. So he was a civil rights litigator. And Alan Freeman, of course, was a Harvard professor. And so... What they began to do was to try and explain through the law how that had happened, right? How, how you have this intention from starting all the way back from the Reconstruction Acts following the Civil War all the way up to the Civil Rights Movement. How, how after creating all of these laws, they served to legitimize inequity rather than change the actual circumstances of people, right? So that's sort of looking into that as kind of the spark that begins the movement of critical race theory, or what would later be called critical race theory. So Dr. Bell's like beginning seminal article, the Serving Two Masters article, is him coming from his own perspective as a litigator in school desegregation cases. And he's working that for years all over the country. You know, he did like 300 uh, cases himself. And he starts to wonder, that is this, is this actually helping my client or, or is it just become like the, the standard way to do civil rights work, right? So he, he starts to see there's a distinction there. Okay, so now I've gone to the school and I've required them to put a token number of black children into their white classes and that's a civil rights win, yay, right? But his question is, but did I actually help those right. students? Are they getting a better education? Are, or, or does the school actually educate them differently than they do their white students, even within the same institution? Or do they police them differently? Or are they given the same opportunities, right? Or what about the community as a whole, whether they're coming from? Obviously, education is tied to the, the segregated living circumstances that they're in. So, so Derek Bell is considered to have 
committed almost an act of heresy, right, to, to even ask that question because, of course, Brown versus Board of Education is the basis to end segregation and, and to, to fix all of the circumstances. And here he is saying, like, but it's not actually helping people in their real lives, that this system is actually right. now preserving the poor right. circumstances that these children have to live with. But now we say it's okay because it happened in a white school that they were allowed to go to, right? And so Kimberly Crenshaw calls that sort of the spark, just that shift in thought about how you're going to respond to, to, the, uh, to the, the new sort of colorblind, equal opportunity, equal treatment as equal protection sort of movement that followed the civil rights movement. So in a sense, the discourse, the traditional and more radical discourse of the civil rights movement had to be transformed to respond to this new situation where civil rights ideology and the laws themselves were functioning to preserve the same racist circumstances that existed prior to those laws being passed. And, and really, I would argue that that's the spark. That's the whole thing. That's what critical race theory is, is it? It's how using, you know, critical tools, we can go in and, and understand these laws and study these laws and understand history to explain how that which was even supposedly sup, uh, supposed to help people of color in the United States became a means of preserving their subordination, right? So that's, that's what I understand to be the start, really the core of critical race theory. And of course, then, you know, it all begins to work out from there. But primarily, it's within law. It's, right. a, it's a legal movement. That's yeah. where it comes from. I really appreciate that analysis of critical race theory, because so many people today are talking about critical race theory who have absolutely no idea what it is. Right what its roots are. Right. The common refrain has been that it's Marxist in its inception. Right. And now I understand that given your explanation of critical theory and kind of where that comes out of. My understanding of critical race theory is that it is not a tool as much as it is a form of analysis. Am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it could sort of be both. I mean, the, the phrase uh, analytical tool is, is actually used by critical race theorists um, quite often, often enough, um, because I think that yeah. one thing that, that is hard for a lot of people to catch right off is that just the idea of social theory in general, right? That the asocial theory is something that sort of becomes a heuristic for interpreting data, right? So it's it's a way to explain things. Right. So um, whether you would call that mm -hmm. tool, an analytic tool, or an analysis, I, I think all of those in some circumstances yeah. to me are, are, are appropriate. Um, it's just that the way that social theory works is, you know, you're presented with all sorts of data and you sort of have to propose uh, a series of tenets, statements, I don't know, ideas, ways, ways of looking at it to mm -hmm. make sense of it, right? And then also then to right. come up with remedies or how to go about changing it. Or So for me, a lot of those discussions, I think, just kind of hinge on like what is social theory in general. And then that becomes mm -hmm. pretty specific when you're talking in terms of law, 
right? So, so much of the basic critical right. race theory texts are, are written around studying legal decisions and like what are the implications of those decisions and, and then how can we reread that and retell that, right, in a different manner that, that could actually uh, cause someone to come to a different conclusion. Um, so to go back, a, a lot of critical race theory analysis comes out of critical legal studies, which goes all the way back to uh, legal realism, right? And so the legal realists, they looked at, right. at law sort of sociologically, right, as it's, it's not like a, a transcendent system of justice, you know, handed down from the heavens and that all the judge needs to do is right. be logical and apply the principles and he comes out with the perfectly just answer. No, how, how right. both legal realists and critical legal studies and critical race theory that all agree that, no, it's, it's, it's kind of like a game, right? There's a lot of different directions you can go that the, uh, the decisions are, are never overdetermined. They're quite a bit underdetermined, um, that, that basically any decision could have gone both ways if they would pull and appeal to the different, you know, different case law, it's just kind of. The direction they want to go and so uh legal realists is, it would argue that now so how we're going to analyze the way the legal system works is we more need to look at it as sort of a reflection of the ethics and norms and political interests of a society not so much as just the driver of those things or as something that exists separate right. and apart from that right um so then when you're right. applying social theory um, in in law and doing legal theory, then that that's what's going to be a lot of the conversation. So if you just give one example, like a great article that I think is important would be like uh, Neil Gotanda's um, on on the Constitution is colorblind. I believe is the name of the article. So you're going to go back through Supreme Court decisions. And you're going to see like, OK, so here's the case. Uh, if you go way back there, maybe determining whether someone is actually African-American or if they're Native American to decide whether they were legally held as slaves or not. Right. So what does the court do? The court has to, in a sense, impose some definition of what race is and how you determine it. And of course, at different times, they use biological, then they use, you know, certain uh, morphological characteristics. Obviously, that this develops, this continues all into, you know, the first half of the 20th century, still doing that same thing of trying to, you know, people have to come to court to prove that they're white in order to become citizens, because that's the first act of the first Congress of the United States of America is to limit citizenship to white people. So you have to prove you're white if you want to become a citizen. So over and over and over again, in a study like that, you can see that courts, even if they're saying they're being colorblind, are having to define what race is. They're constructing the very idea of race in the process of coming to a quote unquote colorblind decision. And then, you know, an article like that, he continues to follow it out all the way, you know, into, into the late 80s, I believe, when that was. Um, so you can go to Plenty of other cases like uh, Backey versus the, the Regents of uh, University of California. And in there, he, you know, he's making an argument about, OK, well, uh, it's an affirmative action case. So someone says, oh, I've been excluded because they've given my seat away to a minority, which violates equal protection. And, and so Justice Powell then 
of course, wants to say, well, you know, race isn't really a thing. Um, it's, it's a social contract, so he's right in that. But then he goes on to say what it really is is ethnicity, right? So then it goes down. So once again, in order to not see race, he's reconstructing an idea of race or what race is and defining it. So going back to what is a critical race theorist doing? Well, in a case like this, he's just looking through all these laws and trying to understand how race was constructed. What are the consequences socially? How, how, how does this affect um, access to different areas, distribution of goods and services, you know, all of these things that are involved. And when we say we're being colorblind, are we really being colorblind? Or are we constructing certain ideas of race so that then we can de-recognize them and when it comes to imposing remedies or, you know, whatever we want to do. So sort of even the interests of the society are, are can be found in what ways they construct or deconstruct the idea of race. Um, so that then gets very specific. And so in that sense, you know, uh, critical race theory is an analytic tool. I don't I don't even know, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I think I think my use of the term tool was not correct. I see it as an analytical tool. And I think the question that I was really digging into is related to some of the kickback that I'm seeing from people who seem to think and claim it as something more than it actually is. And so so to establish that it's an analytical tool, one, it's not this thing that exists that is creating movement and, you know, uh, prescribing the way one should practice their faith or, or so on and so forth. Right. Um, what okay. do you think people are getting wrong about critical race theory at this point? Publicly, I think they're getting almost everything wrong. Um, what's at the popular level, most people are getting presentations that really have no contact with critical race theory, in my opinion. I would say within the churches, it, it has a different manifestation that that I think kind of like what you were getting at before. It's kind of being seen as like an alternate religious system or something. You, you know, you hear phrases like there's no forgiveness in critical race theory. And it's like, I don't know what what are you even talking about? Like, I can't even place that with critical race theory. You forgive away. I, I don't think any critical race theory is right. saying <laughs> what you should or shouldn't forgive. Um, it's not discussing guilt. Even guilt is not a common topic in critical race theory. Um, uh, right. Redemption. It's, it's got nothing to do with this. It's about, you know, how do we, how do we denaturalize racial subordination in a society Right. Which is what you have to do when when the legal system has naturalized racial racial subordination, said it's normal. Well, how do we how do we flip that script? Right. To denaturalize it so that we can see that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And then how do we address it? Primarily beginning with law. That's what critical race theory is up to. It's not talking about what you should feel guilty about or what you need to repent of or whether so-and-so should be forgiven or your ancestors should be forgiven. It's just not even part of the conversation. And that's why I say it's hard to have a lot of these discussions because there's like almost no contact. Right. Probably the, the I, I don't know if you read the article, the first one with Nathan Cartagena and I. Um, yeah. And then where he talks about those three definitions of critical race theory, mm -hmm. right? So at the core, you have the critical race theory I've been talking about proper as a, you know, within uh, the locus in legal theory. So 
it is a legal theory. And then, then that, those ideas sort of travel into other disciplines, right? So in, then you end up with like CRT in education, or then you have CIT applied history, or you have uh, people like um, Patricio Collins working in sociology, right? Even sociology isn't like sort of the primary um, locus of critical race theory, um, right. but there is a traveling of those ideas into those different disciplines. But what you see is that when it, when it does travel into those other disciplines, there Good scholars are very uh, careful to, to explain that, like, okay, what we've done here is from critical race theory, we see that some of these tenets are applicable into our discipline, right? And we're going to apply them to help us, you know, deal with race within our own disciplines, right? And they go from there. But what that kind of creates then is like another, another ring that's easily interpreted as, oh, that's all critical race theory too. Whereas, meh, yeah. I mean, it, it has its roots pretty close there, but it's still, it's an application of it. Like, I always like to point out a, a Solorzano, who's a um, CRT and education scholar, um, how he explicitly does that. He said, you know, this is what critical race theory is. Now, this smaller set of tenets, I think, are very applicable to education. Now, what they would mean in education is this, right? And then starts to work from those premises which is great because, you know, those are good tools for, you know, dealing with pedagogy and all of the racial issues there, right? But they're also care careful to make clear that it has sort of traveled from its original location and the ideas have kind of morphed and changed as they made it out there. So then you have sort of that center, CRT proper, then you have sort of the traveling theories of CRT as it's made its way into other disciplines. Then you have the cultural, right, culture war version, which I think at best is plucking little pieces out of that way outer ring and now reconstructing something, you know, third way removed from critical race theory, yet still calling it critical race theory. That culture war definition, that outermost, most popular level is, is what we're hearing all the time, what we're hearing in the news, what, you know, what people's aging parents somehow have heard of that's what they've heard of right you know um, right I mean I got a phone call yeah. from a family member um, and we had a conversation right. about critical race theory uh, just this week and I told them I'm gonna have somebody on I'm really excited because oh, like what has happened in your mind like where and this is one of the questions we got off of Twitter like where did this start who started this latest storm that we're dealing with in online spaces and conversations. Yeah, so if, if to, I would say secondarily, I would try to identify individuals. I think I think it's important to point out though that just like we talked about before, okay, the something that is a central concept of critical race theory is the idea of the ref, the reform retrenchment dialectic, as some people have called it. Uh, Devin Carbato called it that. I liked it. I've stuck to it, but Derek Bell is the one probably who wrote most about this. So if you go all the way back, you know, throughout history, you have the Civil War, and then right after that, you have Reconstruction. So now we're, we're giving the former slaves land, supplies, opening bank accounts for, for, for them, you know, uh, talking about reparations, 
created the, the Freedmen's Bureau to, to make sure that they're safe in the South against everyone who's now really pissed off following the war and their loss, right? But then politically, that became unsound pretty soon after. Republicans in the North needed votes from the South, you know. And then all of a sudden, the entire mood changes to where, you know what, we need to come back together. Freedmen Bureau's gone, right? Reconstruction over. People who just got land, they had to give it all back, right? They had and put all their money that they had begun earning in bank accounts when all those banks were closed as part of the Freedmen's Bureau, right? And then right after that, then Southerners started passing all these vagrancy laws. So if you don't have a job and you're out at night, now you go to jail. And where are they back? They're back at that plantation they were at prior to the war. So we see that that there are interests that converge for a time that look like reform and begin like reform and advancement against racism, but it seems to be followed pretty quickly by a period of retrenchment where it gets rolled back and then, you know, what happened then? That's the creation of the KKK, all of those things, the Jim Crow laws, everything is born out of that period. So where it looks like we're going to restore, we're going to repair, we're going to bring back dignity according to the laws, according to the intention of the Reconstruction Amendments, but instead you get the complete, you know, reversal to where now people are working for nothing again and racism is you know, through the roof. And then we, there's other smaller periods of this, but then the same thing happens, you know, in the civil rights era. So you get all this momentum, there's a coalition, the interests are converging. Uh, the United States has a very strong, compelling issue to get all this racial brutality off of the televisions because the whole rest of the world, we know this now from State Department papers, is that they were pushing to solve this problem because we're in conflict with the USSR, who's on an international campaign to say we're the racist country, so you want to align with USSR and not the United States. And all day long, on our every day on our television, we got Bull Connors putting fire hoses on people, right? So there was interest to resolve this and roll it back. And But again, the very retrenchment in fact, we, we, you and I, and most all of us were born in this, that post-civil rights period of retrenchment. So to us, it seems normal, right? So to think that racism is personal prejudice against, you know, someone else because of their skin color, and that the worst thing you can do is notice their skin color or make decisions based upon yeah. their skin color, and that as long as you integrate things, then racism will go away, right? That's, that's the white backlash ideology of civil rights, okay? That is not actual uh, black activist understanding of civil rights at the time. That's a, that's a retrenchment move that does exactly what we talked about before, serves to legitimize the subordinated circumstances that people of color live in now, right? Because, oh, I don't have personal prejudice, and anyways, discrimination is against the law, and I don't see color, and also means that therefore I don't have to even recognize there is a problem or do anything about it and and that the, the height of my goodwill would mean just allowing people of different colors to come into my church, you know. Of course not share an authority or power or decision making right? or bring in their own cultures uh -huh. and traditions and histories. That's, you know, that would be an exchange Ooh. of power, which is not part of the civil rights movement in people like me growing up's mind, right? So then we have that period of retrenchment. And then as we saw now in our own lifetime, we have Barack Obama becomes president. We see like, okay, there's some momentum here. There's some change. Then, then we have uh, 
the backlash against what happened in Ferguson, uh, backlash what happened with Trayvon, and all of these other cases, and now, now people, interests are aligning yet again, and we're all in the streets together protesting against police brutality and racism and, and all of this. But meanwhile, what, what's happening? We got Donald Trump, right, who's straight playing to, to Richard Spencer's of the world and his followers, just straight, you know, overt races, constant dog whistles. And so what I think is it's that momentum is just the retrenchment against what, what we've seen recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and this sort of general cultural awareness that, that racism is more than just individual prejudice, that it is system-wide and that, and that it is really the subordinated circumstances of people that we need to look at. So what we're in now is that ne a new retrenchment period. And this is why it's so angry and right. so powerful and so ah. money, so much cash being spent on it is there's a pushback to, to roll back that any kind of reforms that we had been moving towards. So to me, it doesn't matter who the individual right. was so much who started to give it the language needed to take root, right? And to start spreading like fire. It said most Americans were prepared to be yes. offered that language to push back against yes. Black Lives Matter or any of these other movements we don't like, right? That's kind of how I see yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I really... Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you break that down and, and just put that out there because so often, even in that question, right, we want to know who to blame so that we can other. Right. And and here we are, two people who are white, having this conversation, right? right? So that needs to be noted as well. <laughs> yes. And and the reality is like the the way the reason that I'm so incredibly interested in it is because part of my role in this work toward co-liberation is to get my people. Yeah. And there are just too many of them right now. Yeah. And they're making me mad, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, it is overwhelming. And so I'm really at this point of, of just trying to figure out, like, how do we discern and determine who to engage and who not to engage, how to spend our time wisely in terms of engaging people? But, you know, like, I'm sitting here listening to you going, oh, my gosh, you are so right. This is just this ebb and flow. And a year ago, we were in a very different place. And I would argue a very hopeful place, yeah. even though there was a lot of protesting and, and, and just difficult conversations. For me, I'm like, all right, we're getting to it. People are waking up, they're opening their eyes, they're digging in. And a lot of black activists today are like, where'd all the black squares go? Right. Where'd all the people go? Yeah. And then there's this resurgence and this 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 um, momentum that is picking up behind this CRT narrative. Uh oh, CRT. It's a really bad thing, and Christians right. need to flee from it. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it it looks similar though. I mean, it's it was insane to say that the civil rights movement was a communist movement or a leveling movement or, a, you know, th those same arguments at the time look insane to us now, or at least they do to me. But I think we're seeing pretty much this similar tactics. You, you know, that uh, right. you, United States or even much of Western culture, we have a very clear uh, traditional liberal social philosophy that we hold to. And probably the most well-constructed opponent to that would be, you know, communism, 
right? I mean, that's that's what we've learned is that we have like our way of life that comes from Jesus, and then the communists have their way of life that comes from atheism. And we've all been socialized into sort of this duality. So anytime we can appeal back to, you know, oh, it's connected with that that other ideology, the communist, atheist, worldview, whatever you want to call it, ideology, it's a pretty effective method within the United States, obviously, to do that. And, sure. and it's been done over and over again. And I think that's all that's happening right now as well. Um, but, but in terms of how to respond to it is, like you say, very difficult because, you know, one half of you wants to say, well, just then, you know, let's just not talk about critical race theory then at all, right? Like kind of right. When, when the school boards started putting together or the legislatures, like critical race theory is this, it teaches these 10 things, and that itself is racism, so we're going to outlaw it or ban it or whatever. You know, originally you look at that list and you say, Okay, ban those things like, well, I mean, I'm opposed to banning ideas in general, but but they didn't give a list that was critical race theory. So why why should people who believe in critical race theory or like some critical race theory be worried about that? But then it became clear pretty rapidly that the idea was just to make the phrase itself toxic, as Rufo said, in order to subsume any other ideas related to race under it that you don't like, right? To marginalize those ideas. And I don't know if you remember the, the Rufo tweet where he explains that. Yeah. So I think that's what's going on. So yeah. So didn't, didn't you just share that? Yeah. Yeah. I shared that with someone yeah. today. So who is Rufo? So Christopher Rufo um, was with the Manhattan Project, I believe it is. Um, and he's become uh -huh. a big deal in all of this because he was, it looks to me like he got most fed most of his understanding of critical race theory from uh, James Lindsay, would be my observation from watching mm -hmm. over the years. And then... He, through a lot of his contacts in sort of the conservative media world, started to uh, make appearances on Tucker Carlson some maybe a year and a half ago, right? And so he and Tucker started uh. talking about this, you know, crazy evil thing called critical race theory. And uh -huh. um, it was absurd what they were saying, just totally asinine. But that's what directly led to the president then issuing those executive orders against critical race theory, right? right? Follow that. So most people see Rufo as not just, you know, one liar grifter on the internet, but actually a pretty major player. At this point, he's pretty well funded, you know, gets funded very well to just spend every day you know, making up new crises related to critical race theory, which he's told us is exactly what he's trying to do, is just make the phrase toxic. Yeah, let me read this tweet from him. So he says, we have successfully frozen their brand, quote, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. 
Then he follows up by saying the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. He writes it. Yep. He says it. Yep. Like That's the program. Yeah. I mean, because this is exactly what I've felt and thought and railed against. You know, I'm like, okay, if you're going to come at me with this, I have to have at least a general working understanding of what this is that I'm speaking to, what it is you're accusing me of, so that I can engage it intelligently. But after a while, I'm like, as far as I can tell, without getting into the weeds of knowing who these people are and following them and engaging them, like, it's just a ruse to make racists comfortable white supremacists comfortable yep. and to give them a place to hide out more. Because if we create this boogeyman of CRT and everybody starts freaking right. out about it and you've got grandma watching Tucker Carlson talking to you about it, like then they win. Yeah, right. Yep. And I think that, yeah, I think that people need that really, <laughs> you know, you need that, you know, people are needing that method because I think uh, this this round of sort of reform that um, that has really, really, really tried to emphasize the idea of systemic racism or systemic issues or or systemic racism in policing rather than sort of the the few bad apples right um, explanation has sort of required this kind of retrenchment in order to push it back because. That's what is hidden home to most people who could care less about this discussion is the fact that now they're concerned that someone's telling them they're somewhat responsible for these circumstances or, or they have a responsibility to personally do something about it, right? Or that they were wrong to support alternative policies um, that opposed um, remediation programs, right? So, and, and so I think that this is like made to order to clear from our conscious that need to respond to sort of the, the predominating message, which is that we are all participating and have in in preserving the subordinated circumstances of people of color, right? I mean, I would argue that right. that, that is like the dominant example in the United States of literal, personal, active racism, right? Is that we can right. look at people suffering and then say, well, it's the problem with their own behaviors or their own culture. And therefore, the results that come are earned, deserved, merited, whatever else. So when we look at uh, racial disparities, uh, racial group-wide disparities in the United States, and we naturalize it and put the blame on the actual victims, and just say that it is their lack of civilization. I mean, that would have been the old way to say it when when we were wiping out Native Americans, right? <laughs> but it's still the mm-hmm. same argument. Lack of civilization, what? Inferior culture, inferior mm-hmm. behaviors, explains that group-wide disparity. Therefore, I oppose policies that would remedy that, right? Because the mm-hmm. onus is on them personally for their circumstances. So. That, that is actual individual, personal racism that's the, of the most common form throughout the United States, right? And so what's happened is that's the part that's been pushed back against over the last few, few years, 
That's what requires this level right. of retrenchment to defend ourselves from. Yes. Yes. That is so good. That is so good. Because I'm sitting here thinking about like my journey into CRT unknowingly, right? But my journey was one that started with me paying attention to conversations that were happening online and seeing a difference in experience and conversation between communities of color, black people, white people. How were they processing and talking about the murder of Trayvon Martin? You know, like all of these people. And so I decided I need to learn some history. So I started my journey studying history, studying the history of race creation in this country, right? I moved into a predominantly black neighborhood within a few years of starting that journey. And I started having personal connections with people where I realized you, my neighbor, who I've come to really love and appreciate, are telling me that you actually never learned how to swim because you couldn't go into public swimming pools. You, my other neighbor, who served our military and served our country, don't feel safe driving outside of the city and getting on a highway because of the prevalence, how often you're going to get pulled over in your life experience, right? Like, So all of these things for me as I started to become culturally competent, learn about history, understand the context of what kind of impact would there be on a community if they weren't allowed to swim. Well, 80% of the people in that community wouldn't know how to swim today, right? Like there are consequences to the, the context that we grew up in. And so I think it's so interesting too, because so many people like to say that Critical race theory is antithetical to the gospel. But as I'm listening to you talk, what I just heard was a prime example of that which is truly antithetical to the gospel. And that is the myth of meritocracy, this individualized idea that if I know what's going on here, I'm not going to assist anybody, help anybody, you know, like, so you're just talking. I'm like, now, if there's something that's antithetical to the gospel, there it is. Right. So what do you say to, because um, I actually messaged a friend to give them an opportunity to kind of ask a question. Mm -hmm. And he and I have been talking for a long time, so he's probably going to be listening to this. Um, And one of his generic issues, he says, is, and he gives this quote, he says, advocates of CRT say things like, quote, given the entrenched and often invisible forces which shape society and have fostered its misery, suffering, and slavery throughout human history, the role of critical theory is to question everything, including individual items and instantiations of this totality. And I don't, I don't know where that came from because he didn't cite it, but he said he gets frustrated trying to understand how people, Christians especially, can reconcile these discussions between the Bible and critical theory when as Christians we quite clearly understand those often invisible forces, as mentioned in Ephesians 6.12, that, that we're not fighting against humans. And so he's spiritualizing this. So what would you say, because yeah. I think what he says embodies a lot of what people are sort of complaining about. What would you say to that? Can you explain what he said just a touch further? Because what, what perspective is, is he, is he saying what ought to be, or is he giving an analysis of what he understands critical theory to be, or is he saying that? I think so. Okay. He's sent me a few podcasts and things to listen to. And Mm -hmm. every time I listen to these podcasts, 
or read a discussion about it. It's so frustrating to me, and I find this with anti-racism discussions as well. There's a fundamental misunderstanding, and, and sometimes it's intentional, sometimes maybe it's not, but I find that a lot of times people will spend an hour railing against something that's actually not the point of what's being said. So I right. feel that with CRT. But his, my understanding of his problem with CRT is he says it's antithetical to the gospel, Right. And he believes that, you know, we're trying to solve what is spiritual oppression, in a sense, with with man-made created, you know, ideas like CRT. But what he says, he says, all the while CRT pits human against human in the quest for power, which again is a non-biblical pursuit. What would you say? Yeah. Well, I mean, to begin with, it's, there sounds like plenty of conflation there between critical theory and critical race theory, which are quite a bit different. So uh, critical race theory kind of from its inception is not engaged in this full-blown deconstructive program. Um, the the project was almost called the, uh, what was the early name from Mari Matsuda, maybe Angela Harris, uh, a, a jurisprudence of reconstruction. Right. Oh, because because that was a central interest in the creation of critical race theory was to respond to post-structuralism, post-modernism and critical legal studies interest in constant deconstruction. Right. And that's sort of like inherited from the critical theory tradition. And Angela Harris writes about this in detail. Derek Bell actually writes about this, though, after Harris. Um, and many others have as well. Carbato and Cheryl Harris have written about this clearly. This this sort of defining tension of critical race theory, which is that yes, these post-structural, postmodern critical theory, you know, methods of sort of deconstructing narratives or or taking things that seem like this is normal, natural, and just, and saying, well, is it? And kind of breaking down and getting lower. That deconstructive practice is not helpful in and of itself to people of color suffering, okay? But they're saying, no, we are from the civil rights tradition, okay? So we we can use this tool in conjunction with reconstructive tools. So from the very beginning, they've talked about a tension between the modernism of critical race theory and the postmodernism of critical race theory. So yes, we wanna get behind language and find its assumptions and and see if they actually uh, check out or if they're coherent or if they're based upon power relations and try to determine in what ways they are. But the goal is not to just keep breaking down Right. The, the goal is to actually reconstruct a jurisprudence, a, a legal system that that works for minoritized people. Right. And that, that actually makes their rights a tangible reality, not just, you know, a set of rights on paper. So I would say that anyone who actually went and studied the development of critical race theory and a lot of these earlier writings would see that very important to it is that it not be just deconstructive, but it also be reconstructive and that there is a a commitment to an out there world, you know, filled with truth. And there's actual things like pain and suffering and that, you know, that racism is not just uh, in also a term developed as just part of a, a power game. They don't believe that. Okay. 
That's that's part of why critical race theory isn't critical legal studies, isn't postmodernism, isn't post-structuralism. It's part of what makes it distinct from all of those ideas because the main impetus is the civil rights motivation, right? And they're using various tools in order to adapt that civil rights message to the retrenchment following the civil rights movement. So, no, I don't see that strain in it at all. I would outright reject that. I don't think anyone could prove to me from critical race uh, theory texts that, that that is the goal, that it is deconstructive in all of those ways. And I know this also even from directly speaking with critical race theory, teachers, professors, founders, proponents. And most of the time when it gets even into directly into Christianity, they just say things like, well, critical, critical race theory is going to be employed different by you, meaning me, a Christian evangelical, than it is, you know, an atheist law professor. Like, it will be used different, right? But critical race theory isn't intended to destroy either one of those, right? That's not the point. That's not how it functions. That's not what it was designed to do to begin with. It's It has a completely different purpose. And I think that's what makes it hard in those kind of discussions, this is not even really speaking to that. And then when we get to something like um, systemic racism or the embedded nature of racism, um, I think all of those phrases are kind of like dangerous, a little bit scary, because um, they seem ethereal, like like some sort of spiritual thing, or maybe it's even in competition with a spiritual ideology. But I, I don't I don't think that's the case at all. I think that when we talk about something like the embedded uh, nature of racism in America, what we're really talking about is that when all American institutions, including the legal system, the economic system, you know, uh, the very self-identity related to Americanism, uh, specific ideas of property ownership, property rights, what property means, what can be property, all of these things were born in conjunction with our creating a system of racialization a human hierarchy at precisely the same time. And law was a means of doing that. Economics was a means of doing that. Definitions of property rights were a means of doing that. So, so what we're saying there is that the idea of racialization is what's embedded in our institutions, right? Because basic to understanding American life, basic to, to being able to see all men are created equal and without actually giving everyone equality, we had a create a new caste system and it was, you know, created around skin color or nation of origin, right? Race. So we created race. So in the very process of interpreting our understanding of liberal Western ideas of freedom and justice, as well as all the institutions, we were simultaneously and in conjunction and interdependently creating a system of caste racialization of race hierarchy in order to exploit people groups and give advantages and property and everything to other groups, right? So that's that's what we mean when we're talking about the embedded nature. We're not talking some spiritual quality imbued in, in buildings or in anything like that. We're talking about that, that these things were all stitched together together at the same time, that the, the ideologies were cross-pollinating that, and that we can see this. It's not weird, you know, when we, when we have a security-backed mortgage crisis, right? Uh, someone who knows 
uh, history of slavery knows, oh, that was actually created around slavery to begin with, to, to be able right. to to buy a, a security against a slave and and sell it to Europe as a package deal in order to to fund your enterprises here where the state of Louisiana or Mississippi is going to back the mortgage transaction. You know what I mean? That whole system was built up around slavery where people were the products in that, that a, a head or a hand was the actual quantity of money of security traders, right? So things like that are, are central to the development of our institutions. Therefore, they're not easily just like erased by saying, well, I'm not prejudiced anymore, or I don't see skin color, right? That, that in a sense, you, we got to do better than that and look deeper than that. And that's where, you know, critical theory may come in as to how do we, how do we peel back those layers to things that seem natural, normal, legitimate, maybe they're uh, illicit, maybe there's some, right. some bad stuff behind them, maybe we should try and find that. And then right. second, when we're talking about quote unquote systemic racism is we're not just talking about like individual racism, like happening at a conspiratorial level. We're also talking about the general social philosophy that allows us to think that things can just stay the way they are without any remedial work, right? So like we talked about before with uh, Griggs versus Duke Power, so we eliminate, we pass the law and you, you can no longer discriminate, right? But did we do anything to change the circumstances or did we just find a way to preserve the circumstances that existed before for African-Americans totally. in that circumstance, right. right? So so much of what we're calling systemic racism are ideas and policies and actions and even just indifference that preserves the circumstances that were created by intentional racism, yeah. right? So our own version of intentional racism becomes sort of that, that uh, passivity and that blame shifting that uh, allows us to legitimize uh, racial disparities. Um, so when we're having that discussion and when we're talking from the perspective of critical race theory, we're not talking about um, some spirituality or we're not talking about, you know, so many people hear the, the phrase uh, systemic racism and they, they think we're talking about like, you know, ghosts or indefinables or, you know, just some aura that connects with everything. We're, we're not talking about we're talking about very specific social arrangements, very specific things constructed, even yeah. even race itself carries with it those systems um, as, as uh, CRT uh, scholars have pointed out that that when when uh, someone has some uh, black blood in their genes right then they're they're black people no matter like what shade of skin they are right but an african-american that's lighter who's got you know a lot of white blood in his history is still black so they're pointing out is even there there's an asymmetry there's a power imbalance in the very determination of who we're going to call white and who we're going to call black even if it's just in our minds subconsciously right that we we've carried over this idea that one pollutes the other and the other is pure right and that's like something so simple but even that is like so deep in our, our legal code that they're making decisions based upon it in the, you know, in the 21st century, right? And making these determinations as they construct and reconstruct race. It's just, it's not that there's a huge conspiracy of individual races. It's just that all of these things came about together. All of these ideas are, are intertwined. I mean, this is a basic concept of critical race theory is that, that, 
The idea of race itself is not an out there entity on its own, essential, but rather it's constructed by law, preserved by law, right? It's, it's, it's inter, interdetermined by all the rest of the legal system and our social ideas and our norms and right there, they're connected. So it, we, we have to get away from, in my mind, even if we don't use the word systemic racism, if it helps to set that aside somewhat and say something like ideas and policies and systems that preserve you know, racial subordination, something like that to try and get across the idea of what's actually being said. Yeah. Does that make sense? Honestly, this is the very, I, I really appreciate the way you've articulated all of this because to me, systemic racism is a, is a simple concept for me. You know, it's something I've studied, I understand, I can right. speak to it, I use the term, but sometimes you get so far into something that you lose sight of how other people might hear it, right? Like, I'm occasionally reminded that there right. are people who are still offended if you refer to them as white, because they don't understand they have a racialized existence, right? And I'm always like, oh, yeah. So right. so I really appreciate what you've brought to this with regard to addressing the term systemic racism and and likening it to like this spiritualized perspective because it never in a million years would I have thought that that's what somebody might be bringing to that terminology so I really appreciate how you break that down because there's such a disconnect for me as well I struggle with this as you've been talking about this one thing that I thought about in response to this concept that it's somehow antithetical is is studying the human body and learning and understanding how it works in a way that will cause disease and early death versus how mm-hmm. you can treat the body to encourage health and longevity. Is that antithetical to the gospel? Because right. that to me seems like a, a fair right. analogy in a sense of what people are saying about, oh, this is just antithetical to the gospel. Because mm-hmm. this isn't about theology. We're not we're not propping this up as as the way to heaven here. <laughs> you know, we're propping this up as we need to understand right. history. Let's look at those invisible forces that are pushing us. But you're right. These aren't spiritual invisible forces we're talking about. We're talking about the like the cumulative impact of our historical DNA, in a sense, that pushes us forward. Those are the forces right. that are pushing us forward. And spirituality is definitely involved and essential. And, you know, sin is at the core of all of this. I mean... Obviously, if you go all the way back and you read uh, David Walker's Walker's Appeal, which I really enjoy, over and over again, what does he say is the motivation for for the the racism or race prejudice, as they would have called it back then, was avarice, right? Avarice, avarice, avarice. He says it over and over again, and we know that's a sin. That is a spiritual problem. That that you know, the devil himself is promoting avarice, right? So. What I think critical race theory is seeing, okay, so how is that avarice playing out in our society and in our legal system? So I don't, I can't, I have a hard time seeing it as like one ruining the other or one taking away the explanatory power of the other. But, but rather, I was just talking to someone recently that if you bring them both, you have to bring them both together. Even if you went back and Jesus told you to care for the poor and and for the oppressed and you know all of those those requirements, and you you cannot understand what he's talking about 
unless you've done some social exegesis to know who the poor are, to know why they're poor, to know who's oppressed and who isn't oppressed. You, you can't even employ the spiritual requirements without some understanding of your own context and your environment, right? So they're, they're inseparable. I'm, I'm over here. Nobody can see me, but I'm clapping and muted and like, oh, this is just, yeah. <laughs> no, it's so true. And we could go down so many trails here with this. Um, one person did ask, like, what are some strategies to engage meaningfully? Because somebody else, and I think we've kind of touched on this, said that they've heard that, you know, a lot of people are really just kind of using the term CRT to... Um, fight against anti-racism, which in definition is racism, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a pretty fair analysis. So given the givens, like how do you meaningfully engage? Like are there practices that you engage in or things that you do that you feel like help you to kind of push past? Have you had any success even in breaking through on this? Yeah. Um, I think probably the best success is going to be with people you actually know, obviously, not not on the Internet. Um, I think that's just an inescapable absolute. You have to have, like, personal skin in the game with other humans for them to really listen anyhow. But, you know, people wanting to know will seek out things through Internet, public means. But I would think um, – so for me, I would generally like to say, okay – that's not actually critical race theory. This is critical race theory. You know, you can look at it and read it. But also trying to also um, carry with that the approach of, but you don't need to know critical race theory. That's fine, right? Um, I mean, you should know about racism and, you know, how to oppose racism and all that. But, you know, reading all the law journals or whatever related to that, obviously that's not a requirement for everyone to engage in anti-racism. But... Also, then, just don't talk about it anymore. Don't say how bad it is or <laughs> pass on all these false opinions. So for me, it's kind of like it's presenting it as if you want to know what it is, because it's not that, then look into it. If you don't really want to know what it is, then at least quit like passing on the political talking points, right? At least quit doing that. Because I think that one of the things is that because this is so political at this point and the Republican Party is spending millions of dollars and, and using their resources to, to prop up critical race theory as an attack against the Democrats or whatever they're trying to do, every single person who's buying into these false narratives and carrying, carrying these misrepresentations of CRT around and sharing these on the Internet are now just tools of wealthy politicians that don't give a crap about them, period, right? So I would say, you know, in some ways, emancipate yourself from being a tool of politicians on both sides, That's of course, good, yeah. you know, but but in this case, if you if you really care, go and read about it. And if you don't actually care enough to do that, then at least don't be a tool for people who have a lot of interest in smearing their political opponents, right. which is all that it really is. Um, so I think that that's that's primary. And then. Um, Secondarily, I mean, the, the, always the immediate response is, is, well, but that may be what critical race theory is, but that's not how critical race theory plays out in, in real life, right? Yeah. You've heard that one, I'm sure. So I think that's nonsense in a couple ways. Number one is, no, if it's something different, then it isn't critical race theory playing out 
in real life. It's something entirely different. It just isn't critical race theory. Critical race theory is something. Therefore, it's not other things, you know. So let's just not be <laughs> postmodern about that discussion right there. Right. Let's, you know, let's lock that down. It, it, there is something, then it means something. So it doesn't mean something else. So that should be pretty easy. Secondarily, that same conversation always includes something like, oh, they would go even as far as to say that, yes, I know that these aren't actually tenets of critical race theory, but everyone thinks those are tenets of critical race theory. Therefore, in order to defend the faith or defend the good of society or, you know, Republican democracy or whatever, then, then we have to attack critical race theory because everyone thinks it's that group of things. Again, I think that's absurd because you wouldn't do it with anything else. I mean, right. if, like if you're a Calvinist, how many people think, well, Calvinists teach that, you know, God is like some monster and he creates a good portion of the population just because he enjoys them suffering in right. hell for eternity? Because, you know, like a whole list of things. And, and if you're a Calvinist, you're going to say, well, most people think that's what Calvinism is. So that's what it is. And I'm going to argue for Calvinism right. now as though it's right. that. Right. No, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and this goes for uh, if you're talking about, say, you're big into capitalism or, or your um, Austrian economics. And then people are going to say, oh, that's just social Darwinism. That's what, you know, capitalism really is, is they don't, you know, if the poor people all die off then they won't be a drain on the system, you know, any number of things or even more common tropes than that. You're not going to let that become now the definition of capitalism if you're a capitalist. You just aren't going to do that. But somehow with this issue, it's okay. And, and then people then can kind of put themselves on a moral pedestal and say, well, I know it doesn't mean that, but these plebes over here think it does. So therefore, I'm going to attack you every day <laughs> <laughs> as I have been, right? But does that make any sense? I, I, I just think that I think it's so obvious to me that yeah. this is retrenchment, yeah. right? And not just some yeah. duped by bad ideology, but that, but that this is a this mm. is a script I was looking right. for, and now I have it. I would say that's that's mostly what's going on, and so I think it has to be addressed that way. Going back to why we're even talking about this, and one of the ways that you I think is helpful to address that is it becomes very easy to start to point out with people that things that, that when they say I'm not a racist because I believe X, Y, and Z, right? Usually that X, Y, and Z is something like because there's no such thing as race and we're all of one blood and racism is hating someone because of their skin color, blah, 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 right? So they're describing the very belief system of uh, Robert uh, Dabney and Thornwell and most Christian slave owners would agree with every word of that, okay? So, and then alternatively, when... When they say, well, okay, well, we support the civil rights movement, but not this. This is antithetical to the civil rights movement. So if you begin to explain to them, okay, so like how, how did Martin Luther King Jr. understand racism, right? Well, he tells us, he says, racism is a system of justifications to, to explain and justify why you're exploiting a group of people, right? So he explains it in that materialist sense that that's, that's why racism exists and that's why racialization exists is because we racism became a, a means to justify exploitation of a people group, right? Almost universally, someone's going to think that's CRT, right? 
But that is just right. the traditional abolitionist civil rights discourse, right? So I think a lot yeah. of this could be yeah. trying to, try, trying, let's put it the other, another way, trying to find things that they believe they agree with and either exposing that they don't or showing what it means if they actually do, right? There you go, right? So Yeah, I mean, really. I, and I hope that would be helpful. <laughs> if that's not helpful, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, incredibly. Yeah. Oh, that's been amazing. So you mentioned people needing to read. Um, what are some books that you would recommend? Like if somebody was saying, I'm going to read one or I'm going to, um, I'd like to also on the bottom of the show notes, put links to your writings on this. Um, but yeah, do you have any recommendations for people who are like, I kind of need to know more, I want to learn more, what should they do? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of what I've written, obviously, is for that very purpose, to try and summarize and then give copious links to further reading, right? I think some of them I have given dozens and 90 footnotes and, you know, many links to other books. I try to make sure that I give you the PDF format so you can actually read it, you don't have to pay for it. So that's kind of most of what I've been writing awesome. lately is just trying to offer that to, to someone who wants to learn. Now, obviously, um, I mentioned before, Nathan Cartagena, going to his site, reading his material, it's extremely helpful. Um, now, in terms of books, obviously, if you're interested in, like, you really want to understand critical race theory, and you're willing to, you know, get down in the weeds, the critical race theory, the key writings that formed a movement is just a must because there it's literally that a collection of key writings the form right. of the movement and one nice thing about it too is that if you read you know uh alan freeman's the legitimation legitimization arg, uh, article is like 90 pages long but in there it's much briefer right so they're all kind of trimmed down to get the major points across so i think i think that's a good in, way to get into it if you if you're really like actually interested in understanding critical race theory which is going to require you to read a lot of law review articles um personally i'm still pretty fairly happy with delgado and stefankit's uh introduction to critical race theory i think it's perfectly fine introduction i think why it gets a lot of bad press is because it's being treated as though it were like the critical race theory Bible or the book written on critical right. race theory, but he's just giving like the right. simplest, broadest possible summaries of each of these issues. Like he tells you at the very beginning, he's just trying to point you down the path if you want to learn about it. And, and I think the book's right. good at that with all the further re reading at every single, uh, at the end of every single chapter. So I think that one's good for a general introduction. Uh, personally, as long as it's not taken as, you know, a substantial work on critical race theory rather than an introduction. Key writings that formed a movement and as a necessity, I'd say, if you're really interested. But if you're not so much interested in studying, you know, legal theory in general, I always suggest reading Jamar Tisby's Color of Com Compromise and How to Fight Racism. And I think if you, yes. you don't have an interest in critical theory proper or, you know, the whole legal discussion, that those two books together are extremely helpful. And I'm seeing your agreement. Yeah, I really appreciate you mentioning that, too, because when I was talking to my family member earlier this week, the thing I really recommended was Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise, because yeah. I really feel like for me, I didn't really understand or appreciate what I was dealing with within the church 
when I started speaking out against racism. And when I read The Color of Compromise, I was like, oh, I should have read this years ago. But on, on some level, I was avoiding it because I was so upset with what I was seeing within the Christian church. Mm-hmm in relationship to this movement. And so, and I know like we've gone a while, so I don't want to keep you because I feel like I could just go into 10 million (laughs) other conversations. But I want to comment and just say that I think we are in a a reckoning at this point within the larger church, within the Christian world. And what I see people doing is I see them taking this conversation and saying this is the reason for the downfall and they're not getting honest about what really is happening and what is the real reason for it breaking apart and I was thinking about it like I don't lament the way that the church is falling apart because what I do is I trust that it is making space to be able to rebuild something that is not sick in Mm -hmm. its roots and the Truth is, the the big C here in the United States is sick in its roots. And and if like with critical race theory, if people want to reject studying history, I was thinking about it because I used to be, I came from a very conservative background. I was a libertarian. I spent 15 years as a fundamentalist evangelical, all of that. And so I know all of the language, all of the arguments. I spent years arguing these things. Yep. And yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of at this point right now where I'm like, how do I engage this in a better way with people? And I don't know that they're going to be open to it. You know, I'm not sure. But anyway, I just, I just wanted to say that like the, what's happening in the church, it's not the fault of critical race theory, you know, what's happening in communities. It's not because of critical race theory. Critical race theory is, understanding and having context for our history and doing better than we have done. Brad Mason, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about this. Where can people find you and follow your work? Um, Basically anything that begins with also a carpenter. So the website is also a carpenter.com on Twitter at also a carpenter um, on Facebook also a carpenter so (laughs) pretty much that phrase in most of the social media places will be where i am nice and easy right yeah and thank you so much for having me on i've enjoyed this conversation definitely Mm -hmm.